Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here in this place, within us and uh, uniting us to one another. We pray that your Spirit would teach us during this time as we turn to your Word. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So picture this. You, you, you come to church and uh, you're, you're kind of sitting over here and then your friend, who you have not seen since before COVID, is sitting over on this side. I will call her uh, Sue. And you see Sue across the sanctuary and you just you want to say hello uh, you've missed her. You want to see how she's doing. So at the benediction, you shuffle out of your pew and you, you make your way over as fast as you can towards where Sue was sitting. But Sue, instead of uh, waiting for you, she kind of puts her head up in the air and just makes her way out the sanctuary as fast as you can. But you chase her to the rotunda and you say, Sue, wait for me. Wait. She's going out the door. Sue, wait. But Sue just keeps going straight out the door with her nose in the air. And um, not even a, hey, how you doing? Nothing. Now, there's a couple ways that that can go. One is that you say, fine, Sue, I'm not going to chase you down again. You know, you can be that way and not say hi to me and ignore me. You can come see me, but I'm not, I'm not going to chase you anymore. And a friendship can be ruined there if that happens. But if you understand Matthew 18, you understand this passage of Scripture, and if you want to obey Jesus, you, you actually follow your friend out to the parking lot and you say, hey, what's wrong? I was so glad to see you, and I, I uh, hurried out over to you, and you just kind of stick your head in the air and ignore me like I didn't exist. You know, what's wrong? That really hurt. And Sue says, oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea what was happening. Let me, let me explain. I haven't been to church in a year, I, and I have wicked seasonal allergies right now. And my nose was running during the service, and I didn't want to sniffle or cough, because if you sniffle or cough, people get uneasy around you because they think you have COVID. And, uh, and it was, my nose was running in my mask. I didn't have a tissue or anything. And it was like soaking through. It was disgusting. So at the benediction, I just wanted to get out of there before anybody could see me so I could come to the car and just get a tissue. And they both, ha ha, they both laugh it off. My point in this silly story is that conflict can happen like that. The simplest little misunderstanding could lead to a, a broken relationship between people. So uh, it's even a complete misunderstanding can spark a conflict. I've been talking to my colleagues, uh, church leaders and other pastors, and what I've been hearing is that there's a lot of conflict in churches right now. Conflict about masks and conflicts about vaccines and about protocols and about everything else. And do you know what I have not seen at the Free Church? Is conflicts about all this stuff. Now, not everyone agrees with everything, the way things have gone, but I've genuinely seen a beautiful unity of God's people. People who are setting aside their own preferences, people setting aside their own 
even rights for the sake of others. People are being patient. And now we're entering into a new phase. So up to this point, we've been choosing to follow the state's mandatory guidelines. Now we all know at any point we could choose to violate guidelines that the state imposes, but we've, Scripture commends us to obey those things. We did not want to violate any of those things. And, and really, there's been a lot of blessing in the way things have gone. We've had to get creative about things. We've had to look out for each other. Uh, we've had to think of new ways of connecting. We've had to upgrade our equipment and technology and things that God is using to advance his kingdom and will continue to use that we may not have even uh, worked on otherwise. So there's been a lot of good things that have been, uh, been flowing. And for the most part, we've been able to accommodate everybody who's, who wants to be in the, in the room to come. And we've been waiting lists some weeks, but for the most part, we've been able to do this. And there's been a ton of grace and not a lot of fighting, and God has protected us in that. Um, now things are changing. So I want to let you know what the changes are. The first thing I will say, though, is that this is a time where we really need to be vigilant together as a church to maintain our unity. Ephesians chapter 4 is my inspiration. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We need to make effort to maintain the unity that God's Holy Spirit brings us. Did you notice these are red today? Do you know these change colors? Yeah, so this would be what we call Pentecost Sunday, the, the Sunday where uh, churches focus on the work of God's Holy Spirit, or the coming of God's Holy Spirit, the great gift of His Spirit to His church. And we think about what the Spirit does. One of the things God's Spirit does is it unites us to one another, and we need to make every effort to keep that unity. So here's what we're going to do. On May 29th, as you may be aware, in Massachusetts, all the restrictions on churches are lifted, all the COVID restrictions, um, including capacity limitations, distancing protocols, and recommendations for registrations, that sort of thing. The state's mask, face covering mandate ends also on the 29th. It'll be replaced by an advisory, which is a little different language, but basically advising that unvaccinated individuals continue to wear masks and practice distancing in most settings, and that vaccinated individuals would not need to wear masks uh, in most settings, indoors or outdoors. So, as a result of all these changes, next Sunday, May 30th, things will look different for us. So next Sunday, May 30th, masks will be optional. If you'd like to wear a mask to worship, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Distancing will also be optional. If you want to sit distance from other people, we can accommodate that. If you don't want that, you, can, you don't have to. If you want distanced seating, you need to let us know ahead of time so we know how many individuals or groups need that kind of seating and we can designate enough space to do that. So you would need to pre-register if you want space. But otherwise... You don't need to pre-register. You can just show up, and we can, we'll fit in as we need to. The kids and the teens protocols are 
to be determined. Just keep, keep an eye on your email from those ministry leaders to get those details. Um, but we need to remember, as we do this, that there are a number of different reasons why somebody would want to wear a mask or not wear a mask. There's a number of different reasons why someone would want to sit with distance or not sit with distance. There's a number of different reasons why somebody would want to get a vaccine or would not want to get a vaccine. Although generally, I, would, I personally would recommend it as a good way to go for most people, uh, but that's people's personal choice. Our hope as a church is to accommodate everyone where they're at and to, um, and to just respect each other's varied, that we're in different places with this. So, for example, we're not going to encourage people to take their masks off. Say, hey, take that thing off. You don't need it. We're not going to do that. Nor are we going to ask you to show a vaccination card or something like that because there's reasons why you would or wouldn't have chosen to do that. So we're, we're going to just try to respect one another. Free church, we have made it this far without major fights or big problems. We're going to stay vigilant to maintain our unity because transition is where, you know, that's a perfect place for conflict to, to sneak in. That's why for the next three weeks, we are focusing still in the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to be talking about peacemaking. What does it mean to live as peacemakers? And we planned this months ago, but the timing is absolutely perfect because this is a season where we really need to maintain peace with one another. So we're focusing on the Gospel of Matthew. We're leaning on some other resources, books written by Ken Sandy and by Jay Adams and some training that we got through our denomination, the Four Cs. Um, So this week we're going to be thinking about what do you do when somebody sins against you? You know, when when you're in a conflict with somebody or somebody has wronged you. And what, I'm, what I'll share today from Matthew 18, you're not going to hear this kind of teaching really anywhere else. Uniquely, in the, not, not anywhere in the world, and really not in any other religion, because the, our Christian faith, following Jesus Christ, is uniquely rooted in forgiveness. It's uniquely rooted in reconciliation. Our journey starts with a broken relationship with God that he has initiated with us to heal through the work of Jesus Christ. That is core and central to our faith, forgiveness and reconciliation. So in response to God's love and in response to God's grace, that we are are deeply committed to peacemaking, biblical peacemaking, as Jesus has showed us. Sadly, however, many Christians do not demonstrate a commitment to biblical peacemaking. So thousands of Christians leave their jobs, they leave their neighborhoods, they, they have unresolved conflicts, they lose friends, and they leave their churches every year due to unresolved conflicts, and people are left scarred and, and bruised from that. There's high rates of divorce and children who are estranged from their parents and all kinds of different unresolved conflict. But Jesus said it in John chapter 17. He said, the world is going to know who I am because of your unity with one another. So we need to be committed to peacemaking. We need to be committed to this unity. We need to see that when we have conflicts in our lives, it's not an accident. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to see the gospel do its work in relationships with one another. Jesus knew that his followers would face conflict, so he gives very practical advice. And actually, this Matthew 18 text 
is really kind of step-by-step advice. Jesus didn't do that often, but here we have a very kind of clear, take these exact steps, not to be formulaic about it, but to, it's great that Jesus gave us such practical teaching here uh, in Matthew 18. So here's, I, I want to give the six steps here in peacemaking when someone sinned against you from Matthew 18. Uh, the step one actually starts before Jesus is teaching here. Step one is to take the log out of your own eye. And that's why I include this passage from Matthew chapter 7, which we covered a number of weeks ago. But Jesus is teaching uh, about self-control and about self-discipline. Before you can deal with somebody else who has wronged you, you need to realize that you're a sinner too. That we all bring our own sin and our selfishness to the table. All of our brokenness, we bring that into conflict. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If you're in a conflict with someone and you're, you're only 2% responsible for the conflict, then you're 100% responsible for the 2%. Does that make sense? Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. We're not people who look at our own lives and just kind of hide the dark parts. We seek God for forgiveness. We seek other people to, to receive forgiveness from others as well. We know that our hearts can desire things that are not good. That's why James teaches in chapter 4 of his letter, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So when you get into these things, you've got to remember that it's coming from within you, too. And Jesus said the first thing you've got to do is look in your own eye. This is important, because then when we actually do, if, when you do confront somebody about an issue that they've wronged you or this whatever's causing the conflict, you're doing it from a place of humility, knowing that you need God's grace just as much as anyone else. So that's the first step. Take the log out of your own eye. Step two is decide if it's worth fighting for. Is this something I really want to fight for? Because it's, it can be perfectly good and perfectly biblical to overlook an offense if you're able to do it. Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's own glory to overlook an offense. It's actually to your glory. If, you can, if somebody's wronged you and you can overlook it, that's a, that can be a good thing. Or Proverbs 17.14, Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before the dispute breaks out. Sometimes you just got to let it go. Now that's different than pretending it didn't happen. And it's not denial, but it's deliberately choosing to settle a matter, matter in your own heart and get past it before, without even needing to, to take it any further. Now, the caution here is that there's certain conditions where you wouldn't want to do that. You can overlook an offense if, if you are able to treat that person just the same as if it had never happened. If for whatever reason the offense is creating a wall between you or causing suspicion or anything like that, then you, need to, you actually need to engage that. You can't overlook that sort of thing. But if, it, if, you know, if there's a wall between you for more than a short period of time, you, know, this, you probably shouldn't overlook something like that. 
The other thing you should not overlook is if the offense is um, causing harm, serious harm to an individual, to you, to God's reputation. You know, if there's, if there's serious harm, you can't just overlook that. And also, if there's a pattern, it's one thing if somebody makes a one-time mistake or slips up, and it's really out of character for that person. It's different if there's a habit of sin and offense. You know, that you can't overlook those things. Uh, so if you, but if you can overlook an offense, that's actually, that can be a good thing. So you need to decide, is this something that is genuinely worth fighting for? Then we get to step three, and here's where we pick up Matthew 18. So I added kind of the two steps before where Jesus teaches here. Uh, step three is going one-on-one to a person. So verse 15, if your brother or sister sins or sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Jesus said, you've you got to go. You have an obligation to go and to, to deal with this. Uh, you know, but this is, oh, this is hard. Because often we don't go and we, we just let it build up and then we're offended again and again. And then by the time we actually go to the person, there's this whole laundry list of offense. And then the person gets really defensive and then nothing gets accomplished. Or, you know what else is really easy? You get offended by someone, and you don't go to them at all. You just talk to somebody else about it. Because that's not only is that easier, but it feels good, because your friend says, oh, yeah, you were wronged. You, you, were, you were right. That person was wrong. They should have not treated you that way. They should have never said that. They should have never done that. And you feel justified, and you feel a little bit better, but, the, but nothing gets healed. Perhaps this, what I'm calling step three, the just going to the person, is the most important step. Because in my life, and I don't know about you, most conflict in my life gets resolved right there. Because it was a misunderstanding, because I realize I was wrong and I can apologize, and we can, we can deal with it because we kind of put it on the table. But this is also where most conflicts get stuck because it never happens. This is where things balloon and get worse and worse over time. Um, the interesting thing is, I think in mind here is two followers of Jesus who are in conflict with each other, but you could take this into your place of work. You could take this into your neighborhood, and you can actually do this, and people are relieved to put things on the table so that you can actually work on them. It actually is a beautiful way of life that Jesus has given that we can take with us anywhere. But when we go, and if you confront somebody, remember your goals. Your goal is to restore that person, restore the relationship. Your goal is not to get what you want. Your goal is not to punish or condemn or point out faults. Your goal is uh, to go with a heart of love, not with a spirit of anger, and to restore a relationship. And the trajectory here that Jesus gives when he says go is you start as small as possible for as long as possible. And if that doesn't work, then it, you sort of escalate. But you just try to keep it private, and, but you, you take that step. And most conflict will go away right there. But sometimes it doesn't, so you have to go to what I call step four, and that's take someone else along, take others along. Jesus says, verse 16, If they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established 
by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's quoting sort of the Old Testament standard that if there's a, a conflict or a law case, that you need other people to, not just the parties involved, but you need other witnesses to have seen and um, understand what is happening. Not that they're giving testimony per se, but they're witnessing your interaction, hearing the different sides, and can help. And it can be immensely helpful on a number of levels because a lot of conflict comes from miscommunication. Having a third person or third, you know, third parties involved help people communicate with each other. They can help keep... You know, you're going to be a lot kinder to somebody if there's a third person sort of watching and witnessing, less likely for things to blow up. Um, they, that third person can ask questions, help people understand what's going on better. They can gently persuade. If they can see what's going on, they might be able to help persuade towards a... Maybe things get deadlocked, and maybe a third person can help unstick that. Sometimes that person, and actually it would be a good idea if you're in one of these conflicts, to bring someone along who knows the Bible better than you, because they can bring God's word to bear on the situation. They say, actually, you know, the Bible speaks to this, and we can turn to God's word as authority in this, um, whatever the conflict is. And then that person can also help. If things need to escalate or they don't get resolved, that person can help bring it to the next level. This certainly will settle most matters. And I've been in situations where you kind of have to bring in a third person to, to talk it out between others. I've been asked to be that person before. And typically, when, when people are being that intentional to resolve things, they get resolved. But sometimes they don't. So then you go, we'll call step five, you tell it to the church. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Again, you're keeping it as private as possible, as long as possible, but sometimes things do need to get elevated. Now, tell it to the church does not always mean broadcast it to a whole community of people. Again, that would cut against the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you know, keep it small, and as needed, you would elevate it. Sometimes you would have to do that if it was an offense against uh, a whole body of people or if it involved a, a Christian leader or something like that. But really, church leaders could, you know, that's you would bring it to the church leadership. And church leaders can make decisions on behalf of the church, can help step in, get people with, you know, expertise in these areas um, to help sort things out. And actually, Matthew 18, as it goes on, it describes how when, that, that when Christians work together on these things, they have authority, God's authority, uh, to bring to these kind of situations. So that's sort of the next level. I rarely see, see things escalate like that. But then there is a next step. If that doesn't settle the matter, and the person is, somebody is stuck in sin, they will not repent, step six is treat them as a non-believer. And that sounds pretty harsh, and it is. But verse 17, if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. But this is actually quite loving, because if somebody is genuinely stuck in sin or destructive behavior, they need to feel it. They need something, and it could just be getting out of fellowship with that person might bring them to their senses. It's actually quite a loving thing to do. And you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, and you say, well, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He treated them really well. 
He was teaching them about the kingdom. He was calling them to repentance and to healing and to a relationship with God. And that's what we get to do. If things get to this point, say, you know what? We're not in fellowship anymore, but I'm going to point you to God's grace every chance I get. And I'm going to love you because my goal is not to punish you. My goal is to see you in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. So those are, your, those are the steps that Jesus gives us. And we remember, why did Jesus come from heaven to earth? He came here to reconcile people to God and to one another. He came here to bring forgiveness. He came to bring peace. So we need to be radically committed to that, or we are not radically committed to Jesus, because that's what he came to do. We need to know that the good news of Jesus Christ saves us and calls us to a life where we can become peacemakers. I found this quote, relationships get easy in your life when the gospel gets big in your heart. We need to just focus on Jesus and his, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and let that get big in our lives, and then we use that in our relationships. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Again, it's not, this conflict is not an accident. It is an opportunity to see the gospel at work. Your job is to be obedient and faithful to what God's called you to, to speak truth where God has called you to speak truth. But it's God's job to change hearts. You're not out to change people's hearts. That's the work of God to change people. The Holy Spirit does that. So the question is, God, who do you want me to bring this to? Who do I need to take that sort of that first step of going one-on-one with and um, and be obedient to that. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would show us how to take this into our week, into our daily lives, because we're going to face various offenses and conflict. And I just pray that we would be people who follow your lead in this, who follow your teaching, and that genuinely we would see beautiful fruit from that, that we would see reconciliation, that we would not be afraid to speak truth, Lord but out of love uh, to be reconciled to one another, Lord. We pray that you'd maintain uh, the, the spirit of, of peace and unity in this community and beyond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.